0: different than another great conversation to share with you all but i also want to reference an event i had a chance to participate in a couple weeks ago right here on campus i'm of course referencing our march open house that happened on march 11th where we've spotlighted not only our amazing faculties but some of our amazing support services as well. It was really great to see our campus you know, on full display as many of you, many of your parents, your friends, family members, your community joined our community in a place we like to call home. So if you did attend the March Open House, I hope you had a really great time. And if you wanted to take part in an upcoming episode of the podcast, well, here's your chance to do just that. What I want you to do is... Send us a DM on Instagram at Carlton underscore future or send me an email. Uh, My email is stentley.philippe at Carlton.ca, which I will include in the episode notes. And tell me how you're feeling. Not only that, tell me about the conversations you've been having with your family members, with your friends, as you really get geared up for what's going to be an important part of your life story this post secondary journey that you're taking on in the fall of 2023. So yes, I want to hear from you and we will share your thoughts uh, on the podcast during one of our uh, last episodes of the year. So really looking forward to sharing those conversations and I'm really excited to share the conversation I had with Martin Holcik, who is a professor and departmental chair in our health science program martin's doing some amazing research that's related to something that we're still dealing with which is the covid19 pandemic and not only that martin shared what makes science at carlton health science in particular really really unique and the way that we give students a chance to you know have a versatile approach to the study of science so i hope you enjoy my conversation with martin So folks, we've had so many awesome guests and so many awesome people that uh, we get a chance to work with and to partner with here in our office and at Carleton uh, in our community. And uh, Martin is no different. He's an amazing person, amazing member of our Faculty of Science, key to our health science department. Martin, uh, first off, how are you doing today?
1: Stan, thanks very much for the invitation. I'm so happy to be here and have a chat. I'm doing great. It's the second day of spring. Although it doesn't look like spring outside much, but uh, no equinox, like things just get better from now on. So semester will wrap up, and we'll have some awesome opportunity to celebrate with our students' convocation. We always look forward to that. So I'm I'm pumped. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, and no, we we're, we're yeah, you're we're you're saying the right things. You well, know, spring spring has sprung, and you know soon, very soon, the snow will have melted away, and yeah, students will be graduating. It's such an amazing process to think about. The beginning of something and the end of something and that cycle of hey, these students are going to be graduating from their university degrees and the students that we're talking to on this podcast are going to be starting their journey into a program like Health Sciences. And, you know, Health Sciences is, is relatively young at Carlton. It's a new ish program. Can you tell us a bit more about how it came to be? You know, what was the origin story behind health sciences? Was there a need in the industry? Was there some reason, key reason why we said let's go into this a bit further, a bit deeper, and offer our undergraduate students a chance to really develop those key skills?
1: No, that's an excellent question. You know, so Carlton was always a highly acclaimed and well known for its life sciences, so biology, biochemistry, chemistry. Probably about 10 or 12 years ago, folks at Carlton started to realize that there is a gap. The gap was particularly around the health and biomedical health related programming although you could get that information or that knowledge and education from biology, it was felt at the time that there would be a great gap which Carlton could fill in. And initially the program actually started as a graduate program. So it was a graduate master's in health science, technology and policy, because it filled a very specific niche when you're trying to bring together the health education, but from sort of different aspects. And, and, And being in Ottawa, it makes sense to bring in not just sort of the educational component and the research component and again Carlton was very always very strong in those but you bring in also the policy people and the technology people so that's how it all started and it was an institute of HSTP the health science technology and policy and from there it was just a, a very easy sort of transition into recognizing well if you want to have a graduate program it makes perfect sense to also have an undergraduate program which potentially can feed into some of the graduate schools And and that's how the undergraduate Bachelor of Health Sciences program was started. And eventually became a department. I I did mention the the graduating class and convocations earlier because, as you mentioned, we are relatively young program. So we still treasure every graduating class. And the two best days of my academic life is always the orientation in September when we welcome the new students. And then is the convocation in June when we say goodbye to our students who have been with us for four or five years.
0: Yeah, and it's awesome that, that you point out, again, the, that idea of a cyclical process, right? The beginning with orientation, the end with convocation. And one of the things that students talk a lot about when we we talk to science-bound students is the post-ed. So what happens after you graduate and a lot of people, you know, their initial thought is, I'm gonna to go to med school. And it's something that a lot of people are seeing that there is a need for more folks in our medical fields. How does Carlton's science programs prepare students and help students get into med school? Again, I think the the elephant in the room is always that we don't have a specific medical school. I don't never seen that as a negative. I think that's a in some ways it's a really cool way for us to help students along that journey. So, so what's the framing or the the concept behind our science programs that allow students to not only access medical schools, but thrive in those schools too?
1: Often people say, oh, well, how can you have a health sciences program without a medical school? And the best way to think about it is that there is so much more to health science and health than just the medical school. And and we see it very much with our students, where about 75% or so of the incoming first year students, when we poll them, they say, I want to go to med school. And by third year, maybe a third of them actually changes their mind. And it's not that because they're not interested in going and helping people, but it's because we show them there is so much more to health and health related research field than just the medical school. So we prepare students for, if they choose to go to medical school, we very much prepare them in the journey. So our program is interdisciplinary but it's anchored in biomedical sciences. And what's key is that since we are not married to any particular medical school, uh, we took a very holistic approach when the program was being designed and looked out very broadly what it is, what makes students successful when they're applying. And it turns out that in addition to having the biomedical understanding, so this will be you know, genetics, anatomy, physiology, microbiology, immunology, so we provide all of that, a significant component also has to be on social and psychosocial determinants of health. And it is very much valued by the medical community. And it is when we hear from our alumni who went successfully through the medical school application process, they say, you know, there were questions they were asking us about the social determinants. And I'm so happy we have actually programming in our program that specific courses which are addressing that. So we provide a very broad approach to a health science education, and it should really cater well to students whether they are interested in medical school, dentistry, perhaps going to nursing, but also sort of more broadly, like we know that you know, health is such a broad area. We need people who work in a policy, communications, in research, basic research, applied research. So all of that is really sort of a health scientist program in a nutshell.
0: It's like there's a there's a need for a reimagination of what a pathway towards medical school would look like. And that includes being a holistic person. And it's a really interesting concept because students nowadays are way more adaptable, I find, than before. Cause they're they're just so used to, quite frankly, a lot of different changes happening in real time, whether it be socially, academically. Uh, within their immediate neighborhoods and their larger communities, things are rapidly changing. And science itself is somewhat studying those rapid changes, right? In real time and predicting, right? Like trying to see what's going to come next and how can we be better prepared for that. And and I think your research touches a bit about that. So I'm going to try to mention what you do. Okay, So you've studied (laughs) the link between protein (laughs) synthesis, aka the mRNA translation, and disease. So Martin, I'm gonna give you the floor. Tell someone like me who isn't a science person the research you've done and, and how that connects back to what you talked about with health sciences and being interdisciplinary and having that adaptability to a changing world and a changing research. What does that look like?
1: Let me try. <laughs> so um, in it of so the simplest way you can think about it is is that every cell in our human body has exactly the same DNA information. So the, the informational content of the cell, if you will, so the, the blueprint uh, is exactly the same for every single cell. But different cells have to be able to express that information in the form of proteins slightly differently. So our kidney cell has a different function than our liver cell or our red blood cell. And so the gene expression is what will then allow different cells to become what they are supposed to be. So whatever their function in, in, a, in a cell, in a in a human body or in the organ is supposed to be. And there are different mechanisms how this is accomplished in a cell. And one of them is to take the process where the information is directly changed from nucleic acid into a protein. So ultimately, three exceptions. Protein is the business end of the gene expression pathway. So proteins make up our cells, they are the signaling molecules which tell our cells what to do they also the structural components of the cells. From the kind of the performance of the cell, they're perhaps the most important. So we are interested in understanding how the translation from the information encoded as a nucleic acid, and we specifically look at the mRNA, <clears throat> which is the, the, the messenger which takes the information from the DNA into a protein. How does it work? How is it controlled? How is it regulated? And more specifically then, how are changes in it, good or bad, are impacting the human health. So I'll give you an example of uh, one of our research projects uh, where we study uh, a mitochondrial disease. It's a relatively uh, rare mitochondrial disease, which is caused by mutation in a gene which uh, changes how amino acids are attached to create a protein. So without going into too specific details, but it's, it's only one gene in the entire human genome which can do this. And so if you delete this gene, Uh, the person will not be able to live. And we find that this gene is also found in every life form. So from bacteria to worms, to drosophila, all all the mammals, it's the same gene. So it's highly conserved. But there are some people who are born with mutation in this gene, and they have very severe mitochondrial disorder. So our interest is to understand, how can this be? In order to do that, we first need to know what is the normal function of this gene. And it turns out that in human cells, and actually all cells, very often there are some light, uh, moonlighting functions. So the particular protein will do function A, but on the side that there's something else. And often is these moonlighting functions, which give a really a broad range of disease phenotype. So once we understand that, then we can start asking very specific questions. So is there a potential to apply the knowledge and then fix this problem somehow, whether it's by reprogramming the behavior of the cell, or coming up with some sort of treatment strategy whether it's a small molecule or a drug or rna to recover something potentially to come up with some strategic approach to treatment because it's always very very far to go from the basic science all the way to the clinic but that's the ultimate hope for actually most of my colleagues research is always centered around that so i'll now speak more broadly not just for myself but the the research we do is Often characterized as a basic research, so we study the basic, fundamental aspects of biology of a cell. But translation of that is often trying to impact how does it impact the human health, whether it's on an individual level, like in our case, for example, or some of my colleagues are studying more broadly, on a, on a population level. And so, one way we also try to think about our program is that we study from cell to population. So the research across our faculty is spanning all of that spectrum. Right? So you'll find some of my colleagues from my we work on a sort of the gene level, others look on a population level. So it's from cell to society, from cell to population, sort of very, very broad.
0: I mean, you talk about research. Do students get access to learning more about their professor's research and maybe contributing to that research? What's the involvement level for undergraduate students as they progress towards the end of their degree?
1: Research and teaching always go hand in hand. The best way to teach is to show and to demonstrate. And so not just for our department, Carlton always was very strong in undergraduate teaching and undergraduate experiential teaching or experiential learning. I remember way back when last century. Actually, my PhD is from Carleton. So I was here. I was I used to be a TA for undergraduate students a long time ago. And it was always very interesting to see you compared to some other universities where the emphasis on experiential learning. So same thing is in our program. So our undergraduate students are involved not only in the teaching laboratories where they do an experiential learning, but also they can be involved in individual faculty research. But let me digress just for a second and talk about very specific teaching labs we do in the second year. So our students take a second year microbiology and virology. And as part of that, our amazing faculty and teaching lab coordinators, they developed an international collaborative approach called tiny earth. And tiny earth means that we know that we are surrounded by microorganisms. Many of them are potentially very beneficial to us. We can maybe isolate different antimicrobial compounds from that, but the vast majority of these microorganisms are still unknown to us. So our students actively participate in discovering these microorganisms. So we send them out to their backyards and wherever they can go and then bring some soil samples. And they isolate microorganisms, which then they characterize and identify and they identify their properties where they can inhibit other microorganisms. And then this leads to very tangible results. So we've been only doing it for a couple of years. Actually, this will be our second year going into next year. But there are already in many new strains of these microorganisms and different compounds identified. And the hope is then to combine this with our chemistry folks and, and the friends and do a identification of these compounds, potentially leading to a clinical utility. And in fact, the Tiny Earth is a, sort of a global initiative. I think they have like three or four patents, and, and several of these compounds are already in clinical trial. So our undergraduate students have the opportunity through a teaching labs to participate in a leading-edge research without even knowing about it. Mm-hmm. And the, the feedback also is fantastic because they, they discovered that actually what they're doing is just so important. And also they can work with our research faculty either as a, a summer student we support students from the first year onwards, or as iCurious, which is another initiative uh, sponsored by Carlton, or through their uh, directed studies, research thesis, or research placements in a fourth year. So, at, at every point, if students are interested in doing some hands on research, there's an opportunity to do that.
0: Yeah, and I think this is its such an important piece that we're talking about here is that collaborative component to the research. You know, sometimes we think of research and and it's a bit of an isolated event is how it can be portrayed. Like uh, one person has this idea, they're doing this work to discover whether or not the idea is plausible or not, and then they then present that work. But in actuality, it's it's a lot of collaboration and building on a foundation. Like you mentioned earlier, that foundation piece that's, you know, vital to uh, a lot of our science programs, is not, to say, all of them. And then from there, you can continue to blossom into a particular road that fits your skill set, your interest level, and your collaborations that you've already established, right?
1: Of course, absolutely. So it used to be, you're right, it used to be that it was a very siloed approach. Every scientist was sort of working on their own, but we know now for a very long time, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not possible intellectually because it's always better to combine our minds together and work collaboratively, but it's also not possible technically. So lots of the infrastructure, which is required for a, for a cutting edge research, is super expensive. And so you don't want to have small groups of people if they can afford infrastructure like this and just going to be sitting in their labs and being used so we are very collaborative and not just within faculty of science some of my colleagues are in a very very close collaboration with folks from engineering looking for example for tissue engineering and development of uh, you know artificial tissues and how we can uh, take advantage of what we know from the biology but combine it also from also you know, from engineering perspective so for example we have an access to a 3d biological printer so we can 3d print cells uh, you can create tissues or, or organoids and then you can study them in sort of a pseudo-in-vivo or, or in-organism uh, environment. Uh, and so that's so key because again, it, it ultimately it impacts the undergraduates and graduate students. They have access to these technologies, they have access to the, the research project which benefit from these ideas. They can hone their skills if that's what's of interest to them. But also the students in the classroom who perhaps are not interested in doing this themselves, they can sort of reap the benefits from that because the, the, the research also informs what we are teaching in the classroom. And that's sort of on the technical side, but we also have a half of my colleagues are working in a community-based or participatory-based research, and so some students prefer to be in that kind of environment. So they would find the lab work sort of perhaps not very enticing to them. So that's fine, uh, and they can then try to do participatory research, community-based research, whether it's in vulnerable populations or uh, rural health, e-health, healthcare delivery, all the things. When you open a newsletter or newspapers in the morning. And you read about challenges of health, that's what we are doing in here is a very practical, hands on research.
0: You talked about infrastructure. Health Sciences has a again, new-ish building, a building that was introduced um, after the introduction of the actual program. How has that changed the flavor of the department? You know, having a space that's dedicated to our health science program, or neuroscience programs, and a space for, for both assigned students and faculty to collaborate even more. Maybe talk a bit more about that health science building.
1: Yeah, no, we were very fortunate that there was a building which is called Health Sciences, uh, we shared this building with the Department of Neuroscience. And we moved, I think it was January 2018. So we still call it new because it's still sort of new and it smells fresh and it looks wonderful. And it's absolutely awesome space. It allowed two things. One was to bring all the faculty together. So prior to having this building, faculty were kind of dispersed through the campus for their offices and their labs. And that makes it very difficult to be collaborative when you're going you to have the opportunity to just bump into people. The other thing, it also created a fantastic research and teaching space. So on our second floor, there is a ginormous, I don't know, 3,000 square foot open lab space, which is shared between us and neuroscience. This is where we conduct our teaching laboratory, whether it's in a molecular pathology or immunology or microbiology. And that space did not exist before. So prior to having this building done, you we were actually unable to deliver these courses. Uh, so now we have access to this awesome space. And I also have to say that university, university was, and particularly the Dean's Office, Faculty of Science, incredibly generous and, and, and sort of forward-looking and put in a significant amount of funds in funding our researching laboratory. And so if you walk through the labs when they're happening, We have fluorescent microscopes where the students can actually touch them and do some work with them. And so often you hear from some other places where students can sort of watch somebody else do something. Our case, students can do it themselves. So they have access to fluorescent microscopes, flow cytometer, which is used in immunology labs everywhere. So they really have access to this sort of the top of notch infrastructure. And then on a third floor, we were able to to put all our research faculty together. And so we have a space for all the uh, wet lab researchers. So we have, uh, again, we use an open concept. So we all collaborate and sort of are in the same space. It allows students to mingle, to learn about each other. And again, it's sort of much more conducive environment to collaborative research. And on the fourth floor, we have the uh, the dry space. What we call dry space is basically the data labs. These are where the community-based research happens. Well, that happens actually outside in the community. But when you come to analyze the data, it happens in these dry uh, data labs. And so again, it allows all the groups to, to work together. So the, the building itself was a huge, huge benefit to all of us. And because we shared it with neuroscience and many of our students actually also minor in neuroscience, uh, it's very easy for students to come and you just can visit all the faculty, all the research spaces are there, all the teaching labs are together. So it's it's wonderful.
0: And I can speak from experience in saying that it does still have that new car smell. Uh, it's uh, it smells great. It looks really great, and it's uh, it just adds to uh, what makes Carlton a uh, really special. And and that brings me to my last question, which is more of a finish the sentence. Students should choose Carlton because.
1: Oh, this can go so many different ways. Carlton is awesome. I think I, I can speak both as a faculty as a former student. It's student centered enormous amount of support. Experiential learning is key to almost everything students would do here. The campus is wonderful and also the amenities. Now you can speak more to this about all the different awards, for example, the chefs in the residence one every year and the tunnels which connect all the buildings. I forgot how many kilometers of tunnels we have. If you live in a residence, you know, I see students in my class wearing slippers and pajamas because you don't have to go outside. And so I think if you put this all together, it provides for an environment, which I think is really beneficial to students. And you see it in the surveys, our feedback from like McLean survey that Carleton is always one of the top ranks for academic programming, for research, for student life. You know, you should come to Carleton, you choose Carleton because it's awesome.
0: It is It is awesome. And it was awesome chatting with you, Martin. I really appreciate the time. I know that Your students appreciate what you do for them, and and our school certainly benefits from the research that your and your team is doing. And uh, and really, again, appreciate you giving us the time uh, to chat on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Dan. It was a pleasure.
0: And we'll be back with more of The Talking Radio. A big shout out to Martin for joining us on today's episode. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time. We've got one more faculty to spotlight. If you've been following along and if you're familiar with Carlton's five faculties, you know the last one is, of course, well, I won't reveal it today, but you'll hear all about it next week. Until then, this has been the Talk Your even Podcast. My name is Stanley Philippe, and remember, you have a lot of greatness inside of you, so don't be afraid to unleash your inner awesome. Take care, y'all.